Welcome to the King's Church Amersham podcast. For more information and resources, go to www.kca.church. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Let's uh, call you back, if I may, please. Well, that is fantastic. It's, uh, it's just great to see. Right, well, I'm going to dive straight in for the sake of time. We have a new series starting this morning. This is the series, Jesus Said, I Have Come. And you've got dot, dot, dot after that, because Jesus says several times in Scripture, I have come. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. I have come as a light into the world. He says many things, I have come. So we're going to look at these things that Jesus says in this series and you put them together you see you put them all together all the reasons he says he's come and you're going to have something of the rounded heart of God in sending Jesus and if we understand why he came then that'll take us right through up to Advent and then we'll be ready to celebrate the fact that he came so it's all well thought through you see very clever but there's one thing that wasn't so thought through because we planned this series there we are it's in the can all sorted all done and I I don't think it's too grand to say I felt the spirit stirring me. I don't think that's over the top. I thought, you know what? I've missed out. We've missed out the biggest reason of all why Jesus came. There's all these things. He came for our salvation. He came to speak truth, all these things. But even greater than all of that, he came for one thing. He came for the Father's glory. Now, it's not an either-or, it's not either for our salvation or for the Father's glory. It's not one thing or the other, but, but the thing that drove Jesus more than anything else, the thing that beat in his heart, the thing that, well, he got out of bed in the morning to pray, didn't he? But the thing that got him out of bed in the morning was the Father's glory. That's what he lived for more than anything else. So I thought, well, we better start with that. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's read. We're going to read from John's Gospel, chapter 17. We're not, I'm not going to speak from this directly, but I will keep referring to it. But let's use this as our, our benchmark, if you like, our base for this morning. John 17. So Jesus is about to go to the cross. His last prayer. He's praying to the Father. And he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he may give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. And then he prays for his disciples. And then we cut to verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone, that's the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. 
Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Wonderful. Now, in my version, as you can see on the screen in yellow, these words glory and glorify, they come eight times in these nine verses. So we do need to understand what they mean. The easiest way to make an immediate connection, I suggest, is to think of the word glorious. You can score a glorious goal. You can eat a glorious meal. You can see a glorious sunset. These things are glorious because they have glory within them. And we could define glory this way. Something is glorious if it has inherent, intrinsic worth. There's extraordinary value there. Measured not subjectively, oh, I like it, but you may not like it. No, it's not like that. It, it's objectively, it's a question of fact, not opinion. We recognize the unarguable, the great merit of something when we call it glorious. And that's exactly what the Greek word for glory means. Glory is the worth of something that causes you to place the very highest value on it so that you inevitably praise it as a result. That's what the word means. That's glory. And God, you see, pursues his own glory. Isaiah 43, that wonderful passage, God speaks to Israel saying, Fear not, I've redeemed you, I've called you by name, you're mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. I love you, he says, I'm with you. Bring my sons and daughters from afar, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You hear that? Whom I created for my glory, sons and daughters of the living God, called by his name. You were created for his glory. That's why he created you. We'll come back to what that means. Or you can skip to Exodus 14. The Israelites are on their way to freedom, to the promised land. They're escaping Egypt at last. But Pharaoh's changed his mind. The Egyptian army is coming after them. The Red Sea is before them. They're terrified. And God tells Moses, raise your staff. Stretch out your hand. I'll divide the water. You'll go through on dry land. The Egyptians will go in after you. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and his army. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. You see, God pursues his own glory. Or Ezekiel 36, another wonderful passage. God speaks to Israel. It's a foretaste of the new covenant, life in the spirit. God says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you, move you to follow my decrees, to be careful to keep my laws. You'll be my people. I will be your God. But why does he say he'll do this? It's not for your sake, a house of Israel, I'm going to do these things. It's for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. I will show the holiness of my great name. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. He actually says, I want you to know I'm not doing this for your sake. I'm doing it for the sake of my name which is the same as his glory. Wow. Isaiah 48, exactly the same sentiment. For my own sake, God says I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Isaiah 42, I'm the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. That's why, in the context of that chapter, for that reason, he says, I'll send Jesus. That's why I'm sending you, my people, to be a light to the world, to bring them to know me, to set them free for my glory, for the sake of my name. 
Now, of course, there are different levels here. Of course, that's not the whole story. But, as John Piper concludes, our salvation is primarily for God's sake. It's for his glory. So what do we mean by the glory of God? Because even in this passage we read from John just now, it can mean different things. Let's break it down a bit. Let's look at four aspects. Firstly, God's glory is the visible expression of his unutterably greater. You remember Moses asked God, Exodus 33, he says, now show me your glory. Goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And then it all says, I'll hide you in a rock and I'll put my hand over you and I'll go past and I'll take my hand away and you'll see my back, but my face must not be seen. See, God's glory is his visible splendor, too great for humans to see and live, just as we can't look at the sun directly without going blind. Well, you remember the transfiguration in Luke 9? Jesus goes up a mountain to pray. He takes Peter, James and John with him. And as he was praying, it says, the appearance of his face changed. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became dazzling white, as bright as a flash of lightning. And the disciples, who were, of course, asleep, they wake up and it says they saw his glory. Peter remembers this in 2 Peter 1. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We heard God speak, this is my son whom I love. The voice that came in Peter's words, from the majestic glory. That's God himself. See, Peter never forgot that day. Revelation 1, John on the island of Patmos, hears a voice. He turns round. He sees the resurrected and glorified Jesus, the first and the last, the living one, the one who was dead and is alive forever, who holds the keys of death and Hades, and he falls at his feet. And he has no words adequately to describe the sight. His eyes were like blazing fire. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. It's a visible expression of the glory of our Saviour. And that's the glory Jesus talks about in our passage in John 17, verse 5, when he prays, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That's the first aspect of his glory in this passage. That the glory of God is much more than just the greatness of his power, his visible splendour. The glory of God is also his nature. And I won't reinvent the wheel here. I'll quote John Piper once again because I couldn't do it better than he does. The glory of God, Piper says, is the beauty and excellence of his manifold perfections. It's an attempt to put into words what God is like in his magnificence and purity. It refers to his infinite and overflowing fullness of all that is good. The term might focus on his different attributes from time to time, like his power, his wisdom, his mercy, his justice, because each one is indeed awesome and beautiful in its magnitude and quality. But in general, God's glory is the perfect harmony of all his attributes in one infinitely beautiful and personal being. That's interesting, isn't it? When Moses asked God to show him his glory, God's answer is, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I, the God who has mercy, the God who has compassion, God himself equates his glory not just with his majesty, but with his nature. And so Jesus prays in John 17, 1, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, 
that your son may glorify you. This is the second aspect of his glory to consider. What does Jesus mean? How are the son and the father to be glorified? Well, think back to John 12. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified, Jesus says. And he explains what he means. Like a grain of wheat, I'm going to fall to the ground and die in order to produce many seeds. I'm going to lose my life for the sake of the eternal harvest that is to come. I'm going to serve my father rather than doing what I want. My heart is troubled, he says. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And when Jesus prays, glorify your son in verse 1, that your son may glorify you, he means something like, Father, glorify me as I now carry out the great plan of salvation that you have had in your heart for all eternity. Help me as I do this to display before all creation how wonderful you are. Glorify me as I willingly lay down my life as I drink the cup of suffering to the very bottom. And even this, I ask for one reason, that by glorifying me, you, Father, might be glorified. See, Jesus is glorified as he lives out the heart of God to love, to give himself completely in wisdom, in justice, in mercy, to submit and to obey, not to gain for himself, but in order that we might gain and to bring glory to the Father. And Keller says, there is no greater glory than giving up your glory for the glory of another. And this is what God does in sending himself in the person of Jesus. Other orientation, to be orientated around the needs and benefit of others, is the heart of God. In self-giving, Keller says, we touch the very rhythm of creation. See, this is glory. Jesus the Son who dies for the sins of the world. And the Father who sends his one and only beloved Son to die. God the Father, God the Son, one in heart and mind and being, are most glorified in the cross. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. We used to sing that. Mercy there was great. Grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. You see, love and grace and mercy, forgiveness and freedom and a restored relationship with God our creator. This is what Paul calls the secret wisdom of God hidden before time began. This crazy plan that makes no sense to the mind of man that God should come and die for us. We preach Christ crucified, he writes. Christ the power and Christ the wisdom of God. Crazy to man, but the wisdom of God. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, he says in Romans 11. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And this, more than anything, is why Jesus came to show and express and proclaim for all eternity the glory of the self-giving God in the sheer wonder of his plan for our salvation. See, this same Jesus who had glory with the Father before the world began, he's the same Jesus who gave it all up, who made himself nothing, Philippians says, taking the very nature of a servant, 
And being found in human appearance, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, that's why, because he gave it all up in dying for us, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. This amazing plan is for his glory. You remember he came at Christmas. <laughs> what did the heavenly choir of angels sing? In their amazement as God became flesh. Glory to God in the highest. This incredible rescue mission, it's all for his glory. Ephesians 1, it comes three times. In love, Paul says, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. In him, we were also chosen. Why? That we might be for the praise of his glory. We're marked by the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until our redemption. This too, Paul writes, it's to the praise of his glory. It's all for his glory. So now there's a circle here we need to square. Is God for us or is he for himself? Does he seek to give to us or does he seek to get glory for himself? How can he be totally loving and other-orientated as Keller says, if everything he does is for his own glory? Well, the answer is that there is no contradiction because his pursuit of his own glory is not a selfish act. It's not to feed his own ego. It's not to fill some emotional hole. It's not for him to become in some way greater or more glorious than he is already. That's impossible. God, the Trinity, is already perfect in love and power and purity, as the hymn proclaims. Father, Son, and Spirit together. He is already complete. He's totally self-sufficient. He has no lack. He has no need. You can add nothing to infinity. So when God seeks his own glory, it's not so that he can get what he already has without limit. God seeks his own glory for two reasons, for righteousness and for love. What do I mean? Well, imagine, imagine you were perfectly righteous. You're holy, you're pure, you're good, you're just. What things would you want to promote and celebrate and elevate and praise? That's right, your passion would be for righteousness and for holiness and purity and goodness and justice. And you'd be right to be consumed with those things. And where do you find those things most perfectly expressed? That's right, in yourself. So the right thing to do, the necessary thing to do, is to celebrate and honour and elevate and praise yourself. Not for your sake, but because it's the right thing to do. And if you were also perfectly loving and wanted the very best for your creation, for those you loved, you knew the very best thing you could ever possibly give them was yourself, so that they could be utterly satisfied, joy-filled and whole by loving you completely even as they received your love, by worshipping you so that their lives would be full of you rather than being empty, rather than being squandered and wasted by worshipping other things that will just destroy them. Because make no mistake, part of being human is to worship something. If that was you, then your command would be, worship me, be consumed with me, 
that you may find in me life in all its fullness. And there we begin to get close to something like the heart of God who creates us for his glory so that he may be glorified by sharing himself and his infinite love with us. He's glorified by giving, not by getting. He's made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And of course we see just a glimpse of his glory. Maybe you saw a glimpse this morning as we worship. Our heartfelt response is to say, Lord, you're wonderful. It's my deepest joy to worship you. You're a chosen people, writes Peter. A people belonging to God that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And we do it willingly and gladly out of hearts that are full of love for him, for who he is, for what he's done for us. The shorter, Westminster Shorter Catechism famously states, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And you know the wonderful thing is that those two things, they're not two separate things, they're two parts of the same thing. The more we glorify God, the more we will enjoy him as he shares more of his infinitely satisfying self with us. The more we enjoy him, the more that enjoyment will well up in our hearts and out from our mouths in worship and praise. The more we want to live lives like Jesus did that are fixed not on ourselves, but on his glory. It's the ultimate benign circle. And if John Piper has a catchphrase, it is this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The more we're satisfied in him, the more our lives will glorify him, whatever the external circumstances. Because the deepest longing of the human heart is to see the glory of the God who is our creator. And the more glorious he is, which is infinitely so, the more satisfied our deepest longings will be. Move on, verse 22. Jesus says something astonishing. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. Lewis writes about glory. It could have been about this verse. The promise of glory means welcome into the heart of things, that we, his people, might be one as the Father and the Son are one because he's given us his glory. Now, what you may well ask is this glory he's given us. This is the third aspect of his glory in these verses. I think the primary reference it's to the Holy Spirit that he gives us. The nature, the person, the life of God living within us. The clue, I think, is the words, I in them. The Spirit in us, just as he had trailed in Ezekiel 36 that we read earlier. The Holy Spirit is the glory of God that Jesus himself received in fullness when he was baptized. And he promises, he sends that same Spirit to live in us. The presence of God, it's, it's not of this world changes everything, makes us a new creation when we give our lives to Christ and accept his lordship. Jesus' first miracle, you remember, the changing of the water of the wine, water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And John writes of that event, he thus revealed his glory. Now that's not the, the brilliant splendor that he had with the Father at the beginning. It wasn't that sort of glory. Nor was this the sacrificial love with which he laid down his life. It's not that sort of glory. But it's the life of God at work within and through him in the power and the person of the Holy Spirit, the divine nature within him that was not of this world, that was revealed in what he did. 
In fact, Peter calls the Spirit in 1 Peter 4, he calls him the Spirit of glory and of God who rests on us when we're insulted for the name of Christ. This is the glory he has given us by whose power at work in our lives the impossible routinely becomes possible, including as he prays that we might be one as the Father and the Son are one, that we may have something of this supernatural unity that only the Spirit brings, that testifies to a glory that is not of this world, the glory of God, that he had also given Jesus. See, we carry around in our lives the glory of God in the person of the Holy Spirit so that we can be like Jesus and do the works of Jesus and show to the world a glory that is from him. And there's a fourth aspect of his glory too. Verse 24. Father, he prays, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And I was thinking this week about the queue in London. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people filing into Westminster Hall. The astonishingly magnificent jewel in the crown of the Palace of Westminster and there they go in their thousands to pay respects to our dead queen. And as I was thinking of that, I felt the Spirit just nudge me. He took me to the scene in Matthew 25. We're not just millions, but all the nations are gathered. Not before a dead queen on a raised platform, but before a living king on his throne. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. See, Jesus' prayer will be answered. We will see his glory. And to all of us who belong to him, the king will say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Amazingly, it's not just Jesus. We too have been on the Father's heart and in his plans since the creation of the world. See, this is God's secret wisdom that we mentioned earlier. A wisdom, Paul writes, that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Sorry, Paul, did I hear you right? Did you say for our glory? Yes, Paul says that's right. Because no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. This is our inheritance. It's like a wealthy father whose oldest son has just turned 18 or 21. Come with me, son, he says. Puts his arm around his shoulder. I've waited a long time for this moment. Let me show you what I've got for you. Let me show you your inheritance. It's all yours. You won't believe it. And God's plan for us has always been this. That when Jesus' prayer is answered at the end of time, when we see him in all his glory, that we will share his glory. When Christ appears, John writes, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. We too will be given glorious resurrection bodies. Just like Jesus will bear the image of the heavenly man. And the God of glory who is so fiercely jealous about his own glory. Who declared in Isaiah, I will not give my glory to another. His plan has always been to share it with us. To bring many sons and daughters to glory. As it says in Hebrews 2. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Romans 8. If we share in his sufferings. If we tread the same path he trod 
in order that we too may share in his glory. From the beginning, 2 Thessalonians 2, God chose you to be saved. He called you through his gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is not a God who takes. This is a God who glories in giving, in loving, in sharing his goodness and even his glory with us, us who deserve none of it. These are the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Just one word of caution. Although he shares his glory with us, you must remember, it isn't our glory. It's not that we become glorious in ourselves. No, you can sneak a peek at the end of the book when as we as God's people together will become the holy city, the new Jerusalem that is the bride of Christ coming down out of heaven from God. It shone, John says as he sees this, this, this holy city, this bride of Christ, it shone with glory, but it's not its own glory. It shone with the glory of God. The glory that comes from him, the glory that eternally points to him, that eternally proclaims the wonders of his love. It's like a champion golfer on the 18th hole at St. Andrews. He's coming up the fairway. He's massive. He's clear of the field. No one else in it. The crowd are cheering. Onto the green he goes. Taps in his final putt. That's it. The crowd cheer. It's all over. What a victory. And the stewards make space and his little boy runs across the green, runs up to him. And the golfer bends down, he picks him up. He holds him in one arm as he waves to the crowd with the other. There's a picture on TV, that's the one that's on all the sports pages the next day. There's the son, sharing the glory of his father's victory. <laughs> and the cheering finally dies down and they start to walk off. And you might stick a microphone in front of that little boy. Oh, what was that like, you might say, in front of that crowd as they were all cheering? What were you thinking? And the little boy says, it's my dad. He's great. That's it. That's how we share his glory. The glory that proclaims his greatness forever and ever and ever. It's never our glory. It's all his. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to share communion now. Gosh, sorry. We're going to share communion. Tom, band, would you like to come up? And we have communion. We're getting back somewhere near normal. We have ten stations. We have bread that's cut up. And we've got, I'm afraid the wine is still the little capsule things, but at least you don't have to worry about the cardboard anymore. You can ignore that. <laughs> and we're going to celebrate that Jesus was glorified in dying for us. God's plan of wisdom. Going to thank him for the spirit. Christ in us. The hope of glory. We're going to thank him. We will see him one day and we'll share his glory. And the response, what's our response? It can only be one thing, can't it? We commit ourselves to seek his glory in our lives with all we are, with all we've got. To live for his glory, to please him. Whatever you do, Paul writes, do it all for the glory of God. That's the call on our lives. So, I don't know where the stations are, but there's one here. We will take the bread that reminds us Jesus died for us. His body was broken for us, every one of us.
great and small, if there is any great or small. But for you, this is for you, if you love the Lord. And we'll take the blood, the wine that reminds us of his blood that was shed for us. And remember what he said, I won't drink this wine again. I won't drink it until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Because we will drink it with him, because there's going to be a feast. The wedding feast of the Lamb. And the great thing is, we're not even guests. We're the bride. It's the ultimate rags to riches story. Let's give thanks, shall we? Father, for your great mercy, for your incredible love, for your amazing wisdom. Father, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you. And we give you glory now, Lord Jesus. We can't make you any bigger, but we can confess and declare and proclaim your glory today and for all eternity. You are wonderful. You are Lord of all. We give you glory. We give you our lives. Lord, help us that everything we do, we may reflect the life of God in us. We may be like you in what we say and how we think and what we do. That everything in our lives might be for your glory. Teach us your ways that you may be honoured and glorified in us. In our, these jars of clay, but yet we have the life of God. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Lord, thank you. So if you're serving, could you come forward? Are people serving or are we just helping ourselves? For people are serving. Thank you for listening. For further podcasts or information, go to www.kca.church.